Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with Aaron Dworkin, a spoken word performer, classically trained violinist, author, youth education advocate, as well as the former dean and current professor at the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and host of the weekly show Arts Engines, about his spoken word orchestral work, The American Rhapsody, which he will perform with the Augustana Symphony Orchestra on Friday, April 8th. Good morning, Mr. Dworkin. Good morning, Carolyn. It's so great to be with you. Well, this piece blends the writing and speeches of George Washington with orchestral music written by the 19th century British composer Samuel Coleridge Taylor. What prompted you to create this work? Yeah. So for a while, you know, for a long time, I've, you know, explored the connection between um, poetry, text, and classical music, uh, what I've often referred to as musetry. Um, and uh, what I wanted to be able to do was to take the music from uh, a, uh, a Black composer, um, British Black composer, um, and combine it with the writings and capturing the essence of literally the leader of the rebellion against Britain. Um, and also, you know, our first, uh, you know, president. And also at the same time, while someone who is, you know, so largely responsible for the creation of our country, literally, and its initial freedom, but who also owned slaves. Um, and so to kind of try to explore the complexity of the human condition uh, by combining such divergent artistic components to create a new, um, hopefully evocative work that does capture that um, and captures it in a way where hopefully people uh, are able to kind of get a better understanding of that complexity and also be able to kind of look beyond time periods and, and geography um, and nationality to kind of this sense of, of underlying shared humanity that we all have. Mm -hmm. It is very complex, isn't it? And, you know, I was wondering in the process of researching and creating this piece, what did you learn about George Washington that, that surprised you or that you found poignant about his life? Yeah. So, you know, it's so interesting because, um, you know, for most of my childhood growing up, it was just, you know, kind of George Washington, the hero, et cetera, so on and so forth in the environments in which I grew up and in school and what was taught. Then really after school and kind of becoming, if you will, more immersed in my own cultural, my own heritage, I began to kind of look much more negatively and kind of like, yes, well, he was, you know, kind of father of our country, but look at all these slaves he owned. But then that was kind of contrasted by, well, yes, but then, you know, when he died, he freed all his slaves. So this is what really makes him very special. And I was like, Hmm. Okay, you free your slaves, so that makes you special. Okay, so I kind of had a very, I would um, say, um, literally sophomoric view and understanding of him. And so one of the first things I'd say that, that I came to learn in kind of research for the work uh, was how complex 
uh, he was, and that um, and and to understand, especially for example, there there's basically my short answer to your question is there's a whole host of things I learned that were just fascinating, um, but to give you an example of one was a deeper understanding of the economic nature to slavery and um, and how someone like George Washington, who at the end of his life was wrestling with this idea of slavery and absolutely did want to and, and wrote in his will that his slaves should be freed. However, even in doing that, he said it should only be done after the crops for that season were harvested. So even in what you would think is this moment of kind of, you know, evolved humanity of the time and wow, he's kind of come beyond this sense and a sense of understanding of the evil and scourge of slavery. Slavery. He's like, yes, but like, got to get, you know, I got to get my, my, my dollar straight first. Like I got to make sure the crops are, are all good to go and then they can go on their merry way. Right. So it's, it's a very kind of visceral sense that you get of of disappointment in what otherwise could be a more pure moment um, of kind of human evolution. Um, and that one particular moment we capture um, in the music, uh, I think, very profoundly uh, that people will hear. <laughs> And again, music created by Samuel Coleridge Taylor, right? So, and music created by Samuel Coleridge Taylor inspired by him actually hearing uh, African-American uh, um, uh, in initial um, uh tunes that were sung uh, by slaves and inspired him when he began thinking of these variations on an African air. Mm -hmm. Well, your performance is set to the orchestral piece, Symphonic Variations on an African Air, and the Augustana Symphony Orchestra will be performing that. So tell us more about the composer and conductor of this piece, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor. Uh, so, well, I mean, so first of all, just, you know, a prolific, amazing uh, and extraordinary composer uh, and some and and one that everyone really should know and be aware of and explore uh, his works. Um, he uh, actually had uh, his father was from Sierra Leone and his mother was was English Um and uh, and when he was kind of inspired related to this work, um, it originally was uh, this African-American spiritual, uh, I'm troubled in mind. And this kind of, you know, really moved him and connected him with the music of, of African-Americans. Uh, and from that, he then began developing, obviously, this, you know, very complex symphonic composition uh, based on it. So it was ultimately kind of, for me, a connection also with my own biology, uh, because I was adopted when I was two weeks old. My adoptive parents were white and Jewish, um, as is their birth son, my brother, my older brother. And then at the age of 31, I was reunited with my birth parents, my birth father, who's black Jehovah's Witness, my birth mother, who's white Irish Catholic, um, and who ultimately ended up after giving me up for adoption, uh, getting back together and, and ultimately marrying and having another child who they did raise, my full sister. 
And so bringing that sense of being black, white, Jewish, Irish, Catholic, Jehovah's Witness um, definitely is part of kind of my sense of trying to be able to connect with, you know, um, a, a Afro-British composer and combining that with a, a white um, American, uh, English American uh, founder of our nation. Mm-hmm. Well, reading a little bit about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, I was struck to some degree by a few parallels between your life and his. There is this, you know, this mixed ancestry, these these various ways and, and traditions that you were raised that you they grew, that you grew up with. And then I read that that the that the composer Samuel Coleridge Taylor met in London an African American poet. Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and then he set some of his poems to music, which is, which is in a way what what you were doing. It's different, but there are some parallels with you setting the spoken word um, composition production against the backdrop of his music. Yes, uh, so very much so, and it actually is very interesting because years ago I actually did um, recordings uh, utilizing Paul Lawrence Dunbar's poetry um, on my CD, Ebony Rhythm, and combining that. Um, So yes, there is definitely that connection point as well, and I think he probably, he being Samuel Coach Taylor, probably would have done even, you know, a lot more of that type of exploration. He died uh, relatively young, even for for that period um, at 37. Um, But there was uh, one of the things that I would say that is a a little bit different from a number of ways in which people have kind of taken poetry and put it to music, or even when you... um, uh, you know, might think of any kind of standard works where you hear text in orchestral settings. It's usually either interspersed, you hear the orchestra perform, and then there's usually even a break, and then you hear text recited, um, or there's kind of a drone of the orchestra underlying the text, and it's almost really background music while the text is being recited. And for me, with this idea of musetry, it's that they both have equal artistic value and parts. So I'm looking at how can I integrate the text with the music, interspersing it, thinking about the articulation of the notes, thinking about the articulation of the words, thinking about the line and arc of the lines and the verses um, of the of the text and how is that matching or how is it contrasting what's happening in terms of the lines and the music, et cetera. So it's a it becomes a very intertwined work rather than uh, what often happens too much, which is a recited work with kind of music in the background as the recitation takes place. Mm-hmm. Well, I really like that term you coined, musetry, M-U-S-E-T-R-Y. It, I'm sure people will interpret the word differently, but I liked it. It resonated with me because it seemed to combine mystery with music or or simply muse. Yes, exactly. And you're picking up on the multiple uh, intentional meanings behind kind of developing that. And, um, and also, I'd say that for me, at least, I began to actually kind of develop a frustration, you know, of some works like Lincoln Portrait, right, say, which I had, which I've performed um, multiple times, because I felt like there just was the, it felt to me like such a separation between the music and the text. And I was like, and this is such an extraordinary medium 
where if we actually intertwine them, we can create a much more powerful um, artistic rendering of whatever the idea is at play, whatever the sensibilities are, the emotion, uh, the emotional content you're hoping to explore or elicit with your audience. Um, and so all of that kind of contributed to this, this idea years ago of, of developing this kind of form of musetry. Mm-hmm. Well, since we're talking about language and that, and that word musetry, I also wanted to mention the simply the title of your production, The American Rhapsody. When I first saw it, I thought of the song Rhapsody in Blue, the Gershwin song, but the word rhapsody actually refers to an epic poem or, or part of it. Um, a reasonable length for recitation at one time, which is what you are in fact doing. Yes. And, 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 you know, it took me a while, actually, I went through a whole host of titles for the work after it was uh, um, in the process of being completed, went through several versions and actually the titling ended up then modifying the end um, where I end with that, if you will, declaration um, that what we have just experienced, this journey um, musically through a British composer inspired by Black Americans, um, and along with um, this kind of storyline of the first president and kind of father of our of our nation and their experience with with race and with themselves. And ultimately, hopefully coming to a sense in the end that not just a rhapsody in terms of form, uh, but a rhapsody in terms of a sense of understanding ourselves and understanding the nation of America. Mm-hmm. Well, the, and the work of yours, the American Rhapsody, it, while it debuted with the Minnesota Orchestra several years ago, you've performed it around the country for the past few years. But, you know, the last few years have been tumultuous. A lot of things have changed. Do you see it in a different light now, given <laughs> the given the changes in our in our country and the social reckoning that we that we've had? And a lot of uh, of canceled performances or postponed. <laughs> um, and to me, it's um, I. I guess in some ways I, I, I feel fulfilled because I feel like the work is even more relevant than when I created it. Um, I, I didn't um, realize, you know, or, you know, was aware of kind of what was going to unfold in our country. Um, and so oftentimes I think we, when we're kind of, if you will, in the creation world, um, our art as artists, um, sometimes we create things and then they lose their relevance. Um, and that doesn't change this special nature that they captured a moment in time, but they often may lose their kind of sense of intensity or even desire on by audiences just because they change their level of relevance. Um, and it's more rare where it seems like something that we create increases in its relevance. Um, and there are literally parts of American Rhapsody that I am sure audiences now will hear and think about the past couple of years in our country and be and feel like they're directly connected and maybe even created from, even though they existed prior to. Uh, and, um, and I think that's just this wonderful power of art that sometimes you can create something and then it can speak to people in ways based on their experiences that can be very relevant, even though it wasn't necessarily 
and original intent. Um, mm -hmm. As Samuel Coleridge Taylor, of course, uh, I'm sure never envisioned this uh, for his work. Uh, and now it's able to hopefully speak to people in a, in a very intimate and uh, unique way. Mm -hmm. Well, I wonder what he would think of it. You know, he died at, at such a young age. He was 37. He died in 1912. But I, I would sure love it if he was able to sit in one of the seats and, and uh, listen to you on, uh, on Friday, April 8th. And, uh, you know, you've accomplished so many things with your life. Uh, you were named a MacArthur Fellow in 2005. You were a member of the National Arts Policy Committee under President Obama. You've served, as I mentioned, as dean of the University of Michigan School of Music, Theater, and Dance, and you're currently a professor there. But you are also the founding member and former president of the Sphinx Organization, which is a, a group that focuses on increasing diversity in the arts. And you founded that 25 years ago. Can you talk about the need you saw and personally experienced also that prompted you to create the Sphinx Organization? Yeah, and it's so funny, Carolyn, because just from your you know last question makes me realize you know that something that that it was able to be part of creating 25 years ago now has become so much more relevant in the past couple of years. And who could have thought or predicted uh, that things would have evolved the way that that they have? So yet another example of how things can really take on new meaning, new energy, and new passion surrounding them based on what happens to us. Um, or around us. Um, and for me, it really was born out of, I was an undergraduate uh, student at Michigan, violinist, and it was very born out of very personal, you could say almost selfish reasons. Um, you know, I had always been either the only or one of less than a handful of, of string players, especially, or even classical musicians of color in all the circumstances that I was in. And I, you know, would go to orchestra concerts and basically not see anyone of color on stage or in the audience. And um, and to me, that's very important because it's often easy to say, oh, well, you know, orchestras, there's no one of color on stage, so let's just berate orchestras to to fix that, which uh, I've spent 25 years uh, uh, doing. Hopefully, not just berating, but then actually really partnering and helping to bring about change. But we have to take on that responsibility to say, well, then also, why is our community not there? What can we do? How can we contribute to helping to solve this issue? Because ultimately, classical music is just this extraordinary medium through which to communicate, share ideas, connect with one another. So whenever we have a community um, or any portion of who we are as a nation excluded or not participating, it diminishes the art form itself. And so um, as, a, as literally an underclassman, I began kind of taking uh, this on, thinking about this issue. And it started as a very simple idea of what if there was a competition for students like me? We could come together, uh, play music by composers of color, which were non-existent basically at that time, not performed. People certainly didn't know about Samuel Coleridge Taylor, didn't know about uh, Coleridge Taylor Perkinson, didn't know about William Grant Still, et cetera, right? Not performed by American orchestras. People didn't think about Florence Price, which now we get to hear all the time, right? So it was just a different classical world. Um, and, uh, and so I said, what if there was a competition? We would be required to play music by um, composers of color and gain resources, scholarships to go to the top summer music 
programs and music schools. And if we did that, it would completely diversify classical music immediately. And hopefully the world would be a little bit of a better place. So that was the, the dream that started as an underclassman. It is yet to be realized. However, we have certainly progressed along the journey. And so I feel good about that, but there's certainly a lot of more work to do. And, and there's an extraordinary uh, team and, and I would say family that comprises both the, the staff at Sphinx, but also all of the extraordinary musicians who really are what Sphinx is and has created and built it into a movement. Mm-hmm. Well, important things don't change doesn't happen overnight. And, but in the 25 years that you've been working with this organization, it's evolved quite a bit. And, uh, and, you know, I, I hope you're aware of the, of the reach that, that your organization has. I learned personally about the Sphinx organization a few years ago when the Harlem Quartet Mm -hmm. came to our community they were sponsored. They were a uh, visiting artist by one of our nonprofits, Quad City Arts, and they were individually musicians who had, um, you know, risen through the ranks of the Sphinx organization who had won those competitions, and they were fantastic. So, so we really benefited from having them here, and I'm sure uh, their careers probably would have been different without your organization lifting them up. Oh, well, uh, you know, it's just so fulfilling and so wonderful to hear that. And literally every day of my life is filled um, when uh, I hear about stories of our artists and impact that they're having in so many ways. And um, and Melissa and Ilmar, founding members of the, the Harlem Quartet, uh, were engaged and involved going back to the inaugural uh, Sphinx competition and right in its early years. Uh, and Melissa, I first met Melissa, she was 13 years old. Um, and so to see the arc of their careers, their lives, um, the recordings that they've made, the contributions they've made to our field, and the impact they've had on so many communities, um, the the Harlem Quartet, and 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 just uh, all of our musicians, I'm I'm in awe of their accomplishments and uh, and appreciate being able to be part of their journey. Well, Aaron Dworkin, thank you so much for talking today, and we are looking forward to your performance here at Augustana. Thank you so much. Don't miss The American Rhapsody, a spoken word, multimedia, orchestral work, which tells the story of our country through the words of George Washington, performed by Aaron Dworkin, this Friday, April 8th, at Centennial Hall on the Augustana College campus. The performance begins at 7.30 p.m. and is free of charge. For more information, visit augustana.edu events. This has been Carolyn Martin, Talking Art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal.